0: And then we tried to figure out what was wrong. Uh, eventually, she had to be hospitalized for depression. And it was at that point where we found out that she had a very rare form of dementia called primary progressive aphasia. But it was very odd because I, when I sat down to write the book, it was almost like the book was writing itself. It was very odd. It was actually a very easy book to write. In some ways, it was the easiest book to write and the hardest experience to live.
1: Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. One of the biggest reasons people cite as reasons either they've deconstructed and walked away from their Christian faith or reasons that they think Christianity is untrue is what we refer to in apologetics as the problem of evil, the idea that when we look out into the world, we see so much suffering and evil, and then how do we make sense of that within the framework of a God that not only exists but one who is also good and also all-powerful. I have an expert guest to bring to to you today to talk about this topic, and we're going to talk about the problem of evil, and more specifically, how movements like progressive Christianity really fail to give a satisfying answer to the problem of evil. So I want to welcome to the podcast Dr. Doug Groteis, professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary. He's a member of the Evangelical Philosophical Society. So glad that you joined us today to talk about this really heavy topic, but one that you are well-equipped on many levels to talk about. So welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. So you've written on a vast number of topics from the New Age to general apologetics to uh, suffering. And you've also, I noticed lately, I've, I follow you on, on social media, and I've noticed that you've started to review a couple of books written by progressive Christians, more specifically The Universal Christ by Richard Rohr and Shameless by Nadia Boltzweber. Those are two books that I've also read and uh, interacted with. And uh, you also, uh, I want to talk about a book that you have coming out. So you have your your uh, Christian Apologetics, uh, the first volume, which has been out for a while, but you have a volume two coming about out. Tell us a bit about that um, and where people might be able to find that and when.
0: Right. The second edition of Christian Apologetics comes out in April. It was supposed to come out in February, but there were sort of some supply chain problems. And the first edition was, was 752 pages, but who's counting? And I thought I needed to beat it up a little bit. So the second edition is 900 pages with seven new chapters. You could get that directly from the InterVarsity Press website, or you could get it from Amazon.
1: Great. Well, I I happen to have an advanced copy of volume two, and I noticed in there, in addition to your chapter on the problem of evil, you have another one entitled Lament as an Apologetic for Christianity. And I found that title so intriguing. And I think about lament sometimes as something that possibly the church hasn't done the best job of teaching about and maybe embracing. Talk about why you added that chapter in, in volume two. Right.
0: Right. Well, philosophers, Christian philosophers especially, are very concerned to give a logical account of good and evil. And of course, Christian philosophers believe in a all-good and all-powerful God and the existence of real objective evil. So we're not relativists. We don't think evil is just what people think it is. Evil cries out to heaven uh, against oppression, against injustice, and so on. So Uh, I've done a lot of work on the philosophical side of it. And I think the essential answer there is that Christianity best accounts for good and evil. It accounts for it better than atheism or pantheism or Buddhism or Islam or Taoism or anything else. So when we talk about the problem of evil, it is a problem for every worldview. So in my apologetics book, I look at the various contenders or rival worldviews in how they deal with evil, and I believe that the Christian view gives a really solid account of what is good, objectively absolutely universal good, that's the being of God, and it explains evil in terms of the fall, that human beings and some angels turned against God. So we live in a conflicted world, a battle between good and evil ensues. But we know that God is on the side of the good because of what he's revealed in Scripture and primarily, ultimately, in the person of Jesus who experienced the worst possible suffering and gained the greatest possible victory through his resurrection. And through his suffering, he brought redemption, atonement for the world. So any evil that God allows, he allows to fulfill some greater purpose that would not be achievable otherwise and since in one sense the crucifixion is the worst evil that ever occurred because you have a perfectly innocent and loving and righteous victim uh, in another way it is the way to overcome evil through the goodness of god as shown in jesus christ so i think philosophically theologically christianity has the best answer to The existence of evil in light of god's goodness and power but the other side of it actually goes right back to the cross uh, where we should always be actually and it says jesus lamented on the cross he cried out my god my god why have you forsaken me and he was quoting a psalm of lament from david psalm 22. now he was not in despair because he was praying he was addressing his heavenly father but somehow in his suffering and death the shedding of his blood he was taking our punishment and paying our debt reconciling us to god and that involved this horrible cry of desolation and the ultimate suffering that could ever happen i mean to use a philosophical term it's it's the greatest suffering that's logically possible because you have perfectly righteous, innocent victim, taking on the punishment of sin, paying the debt uh, for his enemies. So I look to Christ in terms of how to suffer well. We don't like to think of it this way, but suffering is a skill that needs to be learned. And we're all reluctant learners. I don't say it as much now, but I used to say, uh, God made me an expert on suffering. Thanks a lot. But (laughs) I... uh, I might as well make the best of it. And my philosophy of suffering is to find and to smelt as much meaning out of the suffering as possible. That is, bring a loving approach to life to the suffering uh, that we experience. And Christ is the ultimate model. And it's not only the suffering of Christ. We have about 60 Psalms of Lament in the Book of Psalms. We have a book called Lamentations. Uh, We have a kind of uh, sad resignation, but also a hopeful uh, approach to life in the book of Ecclesiastes, which has given me tremendous insight and comfort over many years. So uh, the lament is part of the Christian life, as you said, that is often not recognized by Christians, especially American Christians, because we have a very general, optimistic, positive outlook on life. And if you suffer, first of all, you shouldn't. If you're suffering, something's gone wrong. But if you do suffer, you want to get over it, move on as quickly as possible. And biblically, lament is actually a spiritual discipline. Uh, It's not one that you plan into your devotional life. But if life is hard on you, as it is on all of us in one way or the other, then we have to learn how to take our sorrows wisely to God. So in that chapter, I said that Christianity gives us the best intellectual approach to suffering and also the best existential approach to suffering because we realize that following the crucifixion of Jesus is the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And there's so much in the Bible about uh, not suffering for doing evil, like First and Second Peter talks about that, but often we have to suffer for our Christian testimony, or we just suffer because we're part of a fallen, groaning, broken world, like Romans 8, uh, 18 through 26 talks about. So the fact that my first wife, Rebecca, contracted a rare form of dementia was not her fault. It was not my fault. We live in a broken, fallen, groaning world. So Out of that experience actually came another one of my books called Walking Through Twilight, which is uh, a philosopher's lament in light of of those uh, deep, difficult problems.
1: Yeah, and I'm excited to talk a little bit more about that book uh, a little bit later in the interview because when I first read it, I I, I haven't told you this yet, but when I first started reading uh, that book, it struck me that it was almost like if you took Augustine's Confessions and blended it with St. John of the Cross's Dark Night of the Soul, uh, the, mm. the poetic um, tone of the darkness is, it just leaps off the page. And I, I was reading through it thinking everybody should be writing like this, everybody, no matter what we're going through or walking through, we should be honestly confessing what's going on and where we have failed and where, you know, like you said, to mine the the goodness out of it, Uh, just a a phenomenal read there. Um, But when we think about the problem of evil, I used to do these uh, apologetics trainings with young people, high school, junior high age kids. And one of the things that they would get really thrown by, and I think it's because they just have access to so much information with the internet and YouTube and TikTok and all of these uh, sort of platforms that are just throwing information at them all the time. But I remember one particular video, a few of my kids were very shaken up about, and it was basically a compilation that an atheist had made that just showed animals tearing each other apart, volcanoes, hurricanes, Tsunamis, people just in all sorts of different, just rapid fire photos and videos of all of this suffering going on. So I think that all of us, when we see things like that, we can feel the problem of evil. Uh, These young people couldn't even really articulate why that implicated God to them. They just felt like, wow, there's just so much evil. What do I do with this? Uh, so what I would love to do, just as we get started talking about the problem of evil, is really just articulate what it is, because as you've so well, uh, so rightly pointed out, there's two sides to it. There's the more pastoral side, the, the actual walking through it side of things, and then there's the philosophical and logical side of it. So let's articulate, what, is, what do we mean when we talk about the problem of evil?
0: Right. It usually has to do with understanding the relationship between several ideas. So the first idea is that there is a God who objectively exists, and this God, secondly, is totally good or perfectly good. Uh, Thirdly, he is all-powerful. He's um, omnipotent and, of course, omniscient and all the rest of the omnis. And there is objective evil in the world. So the complaint is, and you see it in people like David Hume and others, well, if God were all good, he would not want any evil. If he were all powerful, he would have the strength to limit evil or not allow any evil at all. So the God who is all good and all powerful cannot exist. Maybe there's a God who's all good but not all powerful or all powerful but not all good. But the problem of evil is really targeted against theism, and usually against Christian theism. So you have to figure out a way where those ideas, there is a God, God is all good, God is all powerful, there is evil, can be reconciled, or how they can fit together into a unified set, so to speak. And the simplest way of doing it is to say that for any evil God allows, he has a morally sufficient reason for allowing it. And we can think of some examples of that kind of thing. We know that hardship can produce patience and can produce compassion and love and so on. Uh, The great biblical verse on this would be Genesis 50 verse 20, where after Joseph is betrayed by his brothers, they're very vicious to him. He says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So like there's a double purpose going on. Now, we may not see, we often do not see, the good that comes out of many evils. You can see some good. I could see some good that came out of my wife suffering with dementia, but I wouldn't say, oh yeah, I did a little calculation here and it it was worth it. Okay, let's just go on with life. We don't have that vantage point. Only God has that vantage point. And the book of Ecclesiastes really teaches us a lot about that. So... I think the basic Christian answer is we have lots of good evidence that there is a God. We have that from the fine-tuning argument, the cosmological argument, the moral argument. I've got over 200 pages on reasons to believe in an infinite personal God in my book, and I'm not alone in that venture. So we've got all this evidence on this side that there is a God, and then we have the witness of Scripture, of God's involvement in the world, especially coming to the incarnation and his suffering for us. And then you have evil. So I'd say in a sense, evil kind of tilts it a little bit because we think, well, why so much evil? Maybe we could allow some evil bringing about a greater good, but really the Holocaust or tsunamis. And that's the point where you say, if you have a strong apologetic, you have enough reasons to be a Christian And you also have the internal witness of the Holy Spirit but within that framework of knowledge there are things you can't know there are mysteries and the issue is do we have an adequate framework or to put it another way a solid foundation in which to deal with the unknowns and every worldview is going to have pockets Or areas or gaps that they can't explain. Now with Christianity, you can explain the most important issues with lots of reasoning, lots of evidence. Far better than atheism or Buddhism or Islam or pantheism, anything like that. That's what my book is about. That's what apologetics is about. But still, uh, there are passages in scripture that specifically tell us that we will not be able to understand a lot of God's ways in the world. Romans 11, um, I believe it's 33 through 36. Paul has just given us more knowledge about God than any other writer in the Bible. And then he says, God doesn't take our counsel. And we don't understand a lot of what God does. I really should memorize that passage because I'm not doing it justice. But he's just given us the great plan of salvation in Romans 1 through 11. Creation, fall, the coming of Christ, the fate of the Jews and all that. And then he has this doxology where he says, who can trace out God's ways? I find that very compelling because he gives us the big picture or the solid foundation. And then he says, even with that, you as a finite, limited, fallen being are not going to be able to understand everything that is out there. And Ecclesiastes uh, says the same thing in chapter 8, verses 17 and 18.
1: So you write that the biblical worldview, uh, and this is a quote from your book, is rooted inextricably in the themes of creation, fall, and redemption slash consummation. And the problem of evil must be addressed according to all three themes. And I'd like to maybe talk through each of those themes in turn as they relate to the problem of evil. So first, let's Mm -hmm. talk about creation. How is the problem of evil rooted in the theme of creation?
0: Right. You can't really even conceptually understand evil unless you have an antecedent understanding of what's good. And C.S. Lewis has a very good uh, quote on that, which I give in my book from, I believe it's from Mere Christianity. So the, uh, the scripture teaches that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he looked upon it multiple times and said, it is good. That's the judgment of an all-knowing, all-powerful creator. It is good. He brings about goodness. And after human beings are created, at the end of the creation week, he says, it is very good. And we're told that human beings are made in the image and likeness of God, which means that we represent God through our reasoning, through our volition, through the formation of culture, and so many things. So the problem of evil really starts with the issue of what's good. And the creation is good because it was made by an all good God who brought it into being out of nothing. Now, when you continue the story from Genesis one and two into three, we find the historic fall of our first parents where they made themselves the center as opposed to God rebelled against God and then suffered the consequences. So we have creation and fall. And while there are mysteries to the doctrine of the fall, As Blaise Pascal said, on the basis of that mystery, we can explain ourselves. We can explain why there's never been a utopia on Earth as yet. We can can explain how the best people have selfishness and struggles that they work through. Uh, We can explain why no political revolution has ever created the perfect society. It's because every human being is fallen and broken, and we live in a groaning world. But it's not without goodness. We still recognize moral goodness in virtuous people. Uh, It's on my mind now. I think of many of the roles that Sidney Poitier played of uh, a dignified, courageous black man dealing with difficulties of the time, especially in the 50s and 60s. So we have goodness in the world, but we also have evil, which is a defection or a corruption of the good. It's not something that God created. God didn't you know, on the eighth day, or the seventh day, God didn't create evil. Evil is something that comes after the creation, and it's attributable to human beings mm. turning against God. So we have creation and fall, and then redemption is seen right away, because right after the fall in Genesis 3, God promises uh, to send a deliverer. And you see God revealing himself in the nation of Israel, the revelation first to Abraham, the development of Israel through the patriarchs, the prophets, and the prophets speak of a coming servant, a Messiah. We find that, we find him in the person of Jesus. So it's really important to factor in all these elements because often when atheists talk about the problem of evil, they have the problem of the good, you might say, because mm. there is no God who created the world. The world is just here. It's made of matter, energy, space, and time. It has no purpose. It has no final destiny. Human beings are not special. Uh, they're not distinguished from the rest of life. And when you die, you die. All right. Uh, gee, that's a better answer than the Christian answer? You know, sometimes things that are very bad are true, but this is like too bad to be true because we know there is purpose and meaning in life. And we need a worldview that answers that knowledge. And we have that, you know, in the beginning was the word. The word is with God. The word was God. All things are made through him, quoting John 1 there. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. And he has revealed the father in space time history. This is not a fairy tale. This is not fiction. Uh, As Francis Schaeffer used to say, if, if you had been at the cross of Jesus, you could touch it and get a splinter. This is real historical actuality. And so the Christian worldview with creation, fall, redemption gives us true hope. I preached a sermon recently called This Hope Does Not Disappoint Us, which is from Romans 5. Um, I think it's why uh, we well, did Romans 5, 1 through 8, basically. All other hopes will ultimately disappoint us, but the hope of the gospel, which is not just Forgiveness of sins and justification, but the resurrection of the body in the new heavens and the new earth. That is a reasonable hope. That is a hope based on fact. And I often used to console my first wife, Rebecca, by reading her passages from 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection of the body will be raised incorruptible. And at the end of that, Paul actually mocks death. You know, death, where is where is your sting? Christ's victory has conquered it, or I'd read passages from Revelation 21 and 22 and say, Becky, at some point, we will both be in a world without tears, without sin, without the curse. And for us, we had worked really hard at our worldview for 40 years. Well, we had been married about 33 years at the time. And she edited all my work through Christian Apologetics. And one day, um, we were driving to eat out when she could still do things like that. And I said, she was lamenting her fate and it was a horrible fate because Rebecca was really a genius. She was a member of Mensa and a writer and editor, best editor I ever knew. And, uh, you know, I said, that's my dog that my Mm -hmm. dog comes story later. (laughs) He's a gift from God. He really is. But, uh, I, she said, but Doug, is it really true? And I said, Becky, do you think I'm smart? And she said, yes. And I said, do you remember that big book on apologetics you edited? Yes. I said, you, you and I believe every word of that. So take it, take it from me. What we believe is true. It's not just good. It's true and good. And it, it, that helped her that that was not the end of her struggles, but in a way I was kind of vicariously believing for her because she was losing some of her mental capacities and furthermore, she was experiencing a kind of suffering I I can't even imagine. I mean, I might lose a thought once in a while or misspeak once in a while, but uh, I don't have dementia and I'm not on the road to losing my mind, which she was.
1: Yeah. Well, let's let's camp there a little bit because you do write about that in your book, Walking Through Twilight, A Wife's Illness, A Philosopher's Lament. Um and, and one of the things that strikes me about your work is that you are so qualified to talk about the problem of evil and suffering, both from a very high-level philosophical position, but also av- having walked through it in your own life. So tell us a little bit more about Becky's story and your story with Becky and, and maybe some of the lessons you learned as you walked through her battle with right. dementia.
0: Right. Yes, I, I do want to say that, um, I am very happily remarried to my wife, Kathleen, and that's a beautiful story. We actually knew each other in high school in Anchorage, Alaska, but I never had the nerve to ask her out, so we just had to wait 40 years. (laughs) You know, God had other plans for us, and it's really been wonderful, and she is a kind, gentle, lovely soul who brings so much joy to my life. Um, Becky and I met when we both worked in a campus ministry in Eugene, Oregon, And she encouraged me to finally go from the research to actually writing a book on the New Age movement. And she said, Doug, you know enough, and you probably know more than anybody, so you should start writing it, get a contract, and I'll edit it as you go along. So she did. That was my first book, and along the way we uh, fell in love and got married in 1984, and up until... Uh, actually, let me think. Philosophy in Seven Sentences was the first book that she did not edit that I wrote because she wasn't able to. So she edited all my work, all my books. She made me a better person, a better thinker. And she wrote several books on women's roles in the church. She co-edited a large academic volume called Discovering Biblical Equality. And just was a towering intellect, very Sharp, um, probably the second most brilliant person I ever met. Uh, the first was one of my philosophy professors, Keith Yandel, University of Wisconsin-Madison. He had the quickest, sharpest one I've ever seen. But uh, Rebecca was was number two in a close second. So we noticed over the years that she was losing some abilities. Uh, I remember the day she gave all the paperwork to me, which was not a, not a happy day because she had a very good mind for detail, paperwork. She kept meticulous records of everything. And then we tried to figure out what was wrong. Uh, Eventually she had to be hospitalized for depression. And it was at that point where we found out that she had a very rare form of dementia called primary progressive aphasia. And when her physician, it was diagnosed by two neurologists and a psychiatrist When they told me that's what she had I I said what's that I'd never heard of it most people think of Alzheimer's but primary progressive aphasia has a different symptom pattern and of course aphasia means inability to speak so uh, she lost her ability to speak clearly uh, to do everyday tasks and it was a long slow horrible journey but <clears throat> the way that that I deal with just about everything is think how I would put it in words. So as these things would happen, we'd have these doctor visits, and we had to have someone move into our home to help take care of her. That's quite an adjustment, and I could probably write a whole book about that, or at least <laughs> a booklet, but, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a very difficult adjustment, but I was asked by an editor at Christianity Today If I would write up an account of what I've been going through, I've been sharing a lot on Facebook also. And I said, well, I don't think I want to do that. I don't want to really be that public about it. And then I went back to my office and wrote the article in about the basic article about an hour just flowed out of me. And I submitted it to Christianity Today. And of all the writing I've done over the years, this would have been about 2016. I had never gotten more responses to a published article or book than that. So right after that, three different book publishers contacted me and said, would you like to write a book about this? And I said, no, I don't think so. And then I realized that I I probably needed to write a book because I thought I would have insights that would help people. That was really the point of it. Um, it might have been helpful for me to write the book, but it wasn't written uh, as therapy for myself. It was. Basically, a philosopher reflects on his own and his wife's suffering in light of Scripture. That's what the book is.
1: I want to Uh, read this. I'd love to read this little excerpt from the introduction here um, because it just gives a representation of the writing, which is just so deep and beautiful. You, you write, I call this book Walking Through Twilight. I chose twilight instead of darkness since I wrote this book while Becky is at home and I can still communicate with her. When this changes, it will be darkness, and I won't write of that. However, Becky and I know that the darkness of the crucifixion is followed by the light of the resurrection. She will be raised immortal in God's good time. Dawn follows darkness, but this comes at the price of agonized waiting. This book is a witness to that waiting, and it truly is, and um, I I wonder if you could maybe share some of those when you talk about mining the the experiences we have for the good and mining them for um, growth and, and all sorts of uh, the, the beautiful things God makes of these things that when we're walking through it, we can't quite make sense of it or even call it something beautiful. But what are some of those gems you mined from that experience?
0: Well, one would relate to all the caregivers that we had. Uh, we had three different people who had lived here for a certain amount of time, and then when Becky got progressively worse, uh, we had one caregiver who stayed right up until Becky died, and she had to be spelled by others who would come in uh, because she couldn't work all the time to help Becky. And we had a wide variety of different kinds of people who would come in for you know maybe eight hours, 12 hours to give some relief to Diana And we were able to share the gospel with many of these folks. Um, Diana was excellent at talking about how God relates to circumstances and have people know about her faith. I remember, uh, you know, some of the helpers would be Christians, some were not. Uh, We would pray with them. We take an interest in their lives. And we could see good things coming from that. And I think of one caregiver we had who's a very troubled young woman who uh, was there right up almost until the end when Becky passed away, and she came to Becky's funeral, and her funeral was an anointed event. It was, the sense of God was just palpable during that time. So I hope that this this woman sensed the presence of God and has called out to Christ as Savior and Lord. I don't know that, but uh, one way that I tried to find meaning in it was to write about it. And as I said, I was reluctant to do it, but it was very odd because I, when I sat down to write the book, it was almost like the book was writing itself. It was very odd. It was actually a very easy book to write. In some ways, it was the easiest book to write and the hardest experience to live. Mm. I still don't quite get that. In fact, I, I sometimes open up the book and look at it and say, goodness, did I write that? <laughs> and I read That's part cool. of it recently because I was giving away copies to colleagues and I reread my first chapter. And my response then was I am so glad I'm not living through something like that right now. It's, mm. it's a new season of life. And I love Ecclesiastes and Ecclesiastes three, there's a time for every purpose under heaven. Um, you know, there's a time to mourn and there's a time to dance. And, uh, well, I'm not literally a good dancer, my wife laments this, Catholic. but uh, she doesn't actually lament it. I just wish I could be better. Uh, it's not literally a time of dancing so much, but it's it's a happier time for me right now.
1: It's good. Thankful for very- that. Yeah. Well, you know, when I think about your approach to the problem of evil, you have laid it so strongly in the framework of just solid Christian Orthodox theology. You've already talked about these uh, overarching themes of creation and fall and redemption, consummation. You've mentioned the atonement and resurrection. And uh, I want to swing back to that, if we could, because in my research into progressive Christianity, it's really common for progressive Christians to deny these themes and to say, Uh, Actually, you know, this whole idea of fall or creation, fall, redemption, consummation or restoration, uh, as some people put it, this is all just pagan. That's not Christian. And they'll say, no, we we take what I think is a more Eastern view of creation, which would be a denial of the inherent sinfulness of humans and a much more universalistic approach to uh, redemption and consummation. And I want to reference here uh, Brian McLaren, who I think is probably the clearest in his denial of those themes. Um, in fact, he lays it out in six lines. He says it's Eden, fall, condemnation, salvation, and then heaven or hell/slash damnation. So it's it's essentially the same storyline, those same themes. But he is saying this is actually pagan. And so I want to read a quote from his book where he says. What we call the biblical storyline isn't the shape of the story of Adam, Abraham, and their Jewish descendants. It's the shape of the Greek philosophical narrative that Plato taught. That's the descent into Plato's cave of illusion and the ascent into philosophical enlightenment. Sometime after that, in a conversation with another friend, I realized that it was also the social and political narrative of the Roman Empire. So I began calling it the Greco Roman narrative. And all throughout his book, A New Kind of Christianity, he refers to those themes set up this way as the Greco-Roman six-line narrative. And um, before—I want to break down some of these things within those themes and the progressive response, but I wanted to just give you an opportunity as a philosopher to comment on basically this claim that the Christian gospel, as, as you've laid it out, as many others have laid it out in a similar way, according to progressives like McLaren, is essentially just a mashup of Plato's cave and then the social and political narratives of the, of the Roman Empire. Uh, what do you think about that?
0: Well, I'm withholding a certain word I could say at this point, uh, which is represented by two initials. But, wow. You now I read A New Kind of Christian 20 years ago. That was not his first book, but his first major book, Brian McLaren. And I thought, this guy is in a bad way, and he will go completely liberal. And the reason I knew that was because he did not have a high view of scripture. He did not view scripture as inspired, as true, as perpetually pertinent by way of the author's original meaning. He was playing around with scripture. He was giving up way too much ground to Darwinism. And so I thought, and this book, I don't know if you remember back in the day, but this book really caused a big stir. In fact, I consulted with the church because many of the people working for the church were just dazzled by this book and yeah. the pastor brought me in and I did kind of a debriefing session with his staff. And I said, no, this book is way off in many ways. So <clears throat> that was, I think the only book of his that I read, I like that was enough. Uh, I think I might've read, what was that one called? A generous orthodoxy. Generous, that came out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I think I read that too, but gosh, where do you start? Um, the differences between Greek philosophy and biblical, Worldview, the biblical narrative, are just Titanic. And moreover, there's no one Greek philosophy. You've got Plato, who's very different from Aristotle. You've got the Stoics, the Epicureans, they're different from each other. Uh, Plato's Cave indicates that we are needing revelation and redemption. But that's that's really a universal theme in the, the myths and stories of the world. But what you have in Scripture is the fact. You know, as C.S. Lewis said, myth became fact in Jesus. The longings of the world of redemption became a real living human person who died on a cross and rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Uh, in terms of identifying it with existing political structures, uh, really. I mean, think about the prophets railing against the oppressors. Think of the limitation put on kings in the book of Deuteronomy, I think it's Deuteronomy 17, God is king, not any earthly king, and the earthly king is accountable to God, to be moral, to follow the law. I really wonder how this guy guy gets away with this. It doesn't have any surface plausibility, and I don't understand how he could ever back it up. Now, there's one point uh, that has been made by N.T. Wright, of course, who's much more solid, and that is that some greek thinking about the afterlife being forever disembodied has gotten into christianity it gets into some of our hymns some of the theology and that's why when i speak about the afterlife i'll certainly speak about what's called the intermediary state but the ultimate state for the redeemed is the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting you know a new heavens and a new earth in which Righteousness dwells, will be face-to-face with God in a restored creation. So I think, yes, sometimes Platonic, Neoplatonic thought has gotten into the church uh, with respect to our understanding of the afterlife. But to make those kind of sweeping claims uh, is just completely unfounded. And moreover, you now have no adequate answers to the problem of evil. Uh, or to how a Christian should live in society, or what salvation means, or anything else. I mean, this is a total, abject, absolute disaster. Yeah. Not to put a fine point on it.
1: Not to put a fine point on it. (laughs) Well, this uh, book uh, was—so he had A New Kind of Christian, and then in 2010 he wrote A New Kind of Christianity, which was a little bit more of a theological treatise. That was 2010, and so here we are, 2022— um, this many years later, I think th- the view that he put forth has been fleshed out, I think, by other writers, whether they were influenced by him or not. It seems to be a great unity among progressive Christians in their denials of that storyline of the creation, fall, redemption, consummation, or restoration uh, narrative line. And so uh, we both have read The Universal Christ by Richard Rohr, who is an open penentheist. He openly admits that he's a penentheist and that he believes that is the proper view of creation. And so what I'd love to do is is take those. We talked about how the problem of evil is rooted in those different themes. Let's talk about how progressives deny those things and and how that fails to explain those things. So first, let's talk about panentheism. We've talked a little bit about it on the podcast before. um, But if you want to go ahead and define that for us again, how does panentheism really fail to answer the problem of evil?
0: Right. Panentheism says that the world is divine, but there are aspects of God that transcend the world. So the idea is that the universe is an emanation of God. It's actually one in being with God. So you see this in the Universal Christ quite often by Richard Rohr. He talks about God emanating himself. Not that he creates the world distinct from himself, which is the biblical metaphysic, Genesis 1. John one, every other thing in the Bible, but that the universe is an extension of the very being of God. So for example, I wanted to come back to my dog, Sonny because he barked a few minutes ago. (laughs) Richard Rohr dedicates his book to his beloved dog who he had to put down. And that's, that's fine. But what follows is he says that truly without any, Cheap theology. My dog was Christ to me. I am a dog lover. You'd be hard pressed to find someone who loves more dogs than I do, loves dogs more than I do, or more dogs than I do. But my dog Sonny, who brought us so much comfort and fun and love through my wife's illness, and still he's ten years old, is not Christ to me. Uh, if he were Christ to me, I would worship him, and I don't so he is a gift from god all good gifts come from god james 1. but you see on this panentheistic worldview the universe is divine although god in some shadowy sense transcends the universe also and sometimes when i read richard Rohr, and i try to read as little as necessary he just seems like a flat pantheist everything is divine and we are part of this great everything he says in the book, I think maybe the most significant statement in that book, he says, we have never been separate from God. <clears throat> so let's look at Isaiah 59. Your sins have separated you from God. The whole drama of redemption is that we've got to have a reconciliation you know, between God and human beings. And the reconciler is God himself in Christ, in the cross. Without that, without A holy God who is distinct from us. As Schaeffer used to say, God is infinite and personal. We are finite and personal. God is eternal. We are limited in time. Without that distinction, the story, the worldview of Christianity just implodes. And when you read the universal Christ, you see the implosion of Christianity. Mm. No God Mm. left. There's no Jesus left. There's no salvation left.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, as we're talking about this theme in creation as it relates to the panentheism, at least the type of panentheism that Richard Rohr is putting forward, I noticed too Mm -hmm. in the book that he's regularly, at least a couple of times, he says, when he's talking about what's been made in the image of God, he refers to all created things. You know, as, and, and that's something that could slip by, but if you really think about it, we have to start by understanding that human beings are different than animals. Like you said, you love your dog, he's a gift from God, but you don't worship your dog. Your dog is not on the same level as a human being as far as being made in the image of God, But but roar tends to kind of conflate those categories And as you were talking about God emanating himself or incarnating himself into physical matter, you have the image of God stamped on everything. And that just is really disastrous for for so many foundational doctrines, I think.
0: Well, it is. In fact, he says the creation of the universe, which really for him is an emanation, is the first incarnation. And then Jesus is the second incarnation. No biblical writer, no orthodox theologian. I mean, a theologian that's really thinking in terms of the authority and objective meaning of Scripture would ever say anything like that. You know, you've got these themes, these doctrines. You've got the creation. We're made in God's image. When God comes personally, he comes as a human being, which is fitting because we're made in the image of God. So if God himself is going to come to redeem us, he wouldn't come as a dog or a tree. He comes as Jesus. So this this roar is just undermining every fundamental doctrine. Now, one of the dangerous things about this is that he uses the language of Scripture and Christian tradition, Yes. right? God, Christ, salvation, Trinity, et cetera. But he redefines all of those terms according to a worldview that is utterly alien and antagonistic and antithetical to the Bible. I mean, it's, it's a great coup. Mm-hmm. You know, for Satanists to come out and say, we worship Satan because he's really the most important force in the universe. Follow us. Not a lot of people are going to bite that one. But when you write a book called The Universal Christ, it already sounds so wonderful. Yeah. Who wants to read a book called The Narrow-Minded Christ, right? So <laughs> The Universal Christ.
1: Yeah. I also noticed but, as uh, I was reading the book that he would quote quote scripture, and I'm doing that in quotations, air quotes. And then you you I would go and try to find the translation that he was using, or there'd be a footnote, and he would say, my translation. And I'm thinking, okay, I, I mean, I'm not aware of him having the qualifications to, or or does he speak biblical Greek and Hebrew? And, and the translation is radically different than any other translation you can find. So at that point, he's just inventing scripture, it seems. But yeah. yeah, it's a mess.
0: Well, it really is. And I think of something I heard in a sermon by Chuck Swindoll many years ago. He said that, Uh, The way he put it was, the cults use our vocabulary, but they don't use our dictionary. Mm -hmm. I thought that just captured it perfectly because you use the word God, Christ, salvation, trinity, atonement, but you attribute a totally different meaning. So, you know, another uh, one of my heroes I've mentioned, Francis Schaeffer, uh, was Walter Martin, who wrote The Kingdom of the Cults many years ago. And he talked about scaling the language barrier. If you're talking to Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or uh, mind science people, which would be kind of close to what Rohr is doing because they're panentheists or pantheists, said, you've got to define your terms and illustrate your terms. Otherwise, you'll just be going past each other all the time. Yeah, I noticed that with Rohr also. He he gives a pantheist or panentheist reading of text. And sometimes he changes it around to make it fit. Mm-hmm. Like he translate a, translates a passage from Paul, might be in Colossians, saying that Christ is is everything, or there is only Christ, or something. Hold on, now is is God everywhere? Yes. Is God everything? No. Creator, creation, sin, righteousness, redemption. You can tell I get a little exercised about this. Whenever I talk about Richard Rohr, my my personality comes out.
1: <laughs> well, I loved your review because you just came out swinging and I you know, in my world, yeah. I, I kind of immersed in that world and so to hear somebody just come out so strong and clear was just it was like, "Oh, yeah. thank you." Yes. So I thought that was great. So yeah. we've talked about the the progressive denials on the area on the level of creation and then fall, which is largely denied in progressive Christianity either they they don't really deny that people sin of course they'll say people do wrong things people even can do evil things but their sin ultimately doesn't separate them from god now moving into this final bit of that of those themes which would be the redemption the consummation and that largely is denied in progressive Christianity with the general acceptance of universalism. So I wonder if you could talk about what implications does universalism have for the nature and character of God when it comes to evil and, and how does that uh, kind of how does that fit into this conversation when we talk about the problem of evil?
0: Right. Well, if we go to Rohr, he says we've never been separate from God. So he's denying any biblical, any historic Christian doctrine of the fall of sin, and then, of course, redemption. Because redemption is where the sin problem is dealt with through the atonement of Jesus. So, as I said, that one sentence just discredits the entire book. Now, if that's the case, then there really is no redemption. It's a matter of finding God within yourself. That is a view that I've been studying and writing about and writing against for forty, almost 45 years. And that's why I think I get so passionate when I find people who identify as Christians presenting uh, a non-Christian worldview, a radically non-Christian worldview. So for Roar, the idea of God's holy justice or God being a God who punishes sin is off the table, not part of his metaphysic.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So that means, of course, everyone will be redeemed in one way or the other, no one could finally deny their own being. Now, biblically, some people tragically deny the authority of God and and the offer of salvation. So, uh, Jesus says, the most powerful verse on hell, on eternal punishment, is Matthew 25, 46, the, the righteous go into eternal life and the unrighteous into eternal torment. I was talking to a universalist about that verse some years ago. I was listening to all of his claims and saying, yeah, that's interesting. I don't think I can go there. But what about this verse? And he very honestly said, well, we just have to obfuscate when we get to that verse. (laughs) You know, we have to cloud it over or undermine it. And I say, wait a minute. If you have to obfuscate to defend your doctrine here, you're in, as Walter Martin used to say, deep yogurt.
1: Deep yogurt. I love it yeah that's good. <laughs> that's good. Well, in a moment, we're going to go to our after-party hangout where we get to ask a few extra questions. If you want to be a part of that, you can go to patreon.com slash Alisa Childers and select Tier 4. Tier 4 will give you access to a private Facebook group where we have some amazing discussions in this group. We read books together. We read. uh, This is the group where we read what we call the the bad book club. So we read books we disagree with, and we learn how to discern through those things. We have uh, read Universal Christ as a group together and shared our insights on Zoom. So if you want to be a part of that, go to patreon.com slash Elisa Childers. You can select tier four. You could select tier, uh, any of the tiers before that for early access to podcasts and a tier three for bonus content. But uh, Dr. Uh, Groteis, as we close out this portion of our conversation today, um, are there any other thoughts that you'd like to share about how authentic Christianity Offers the best answer to the problem of evil and and human suffering.
0: Right. Well, I'd wanted to say this earlier, and you didn't ask me to say this, but I really appreciate your book, Another oh,
1: Gospel.
0: Thank you. It's, uh, very readable. You have a personal story that makes important and needed and relevant apologetic points. So I really enjoyed and benefited from reading it, and I am a fussy old apologist. <laughs> so uh, the fact that I like it and give it a thumbs up is no easy deal.
1: That means everything oh, to me. Thank good. you so much.
0: I encourage people to read the book and then read my books too, but read, read Elise's book for, <laughs> <laughs> if you warmed up. Well, I would sum up simply by saying that the Christian story, the Christian worldview gives us the best account of God, good and evil. And not just the best account, as in the best philosophy, but the best practice, the best way to enjoy the goodness of life, and the best way to lament and suffer and look ahead to the hope that does not disappoint us.
1: Well, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Doug Groteis, for joining me today for this, really, I just thought this was such a rich discussion about the problem of evil. Pick up his books, get Christian Apologetics, Volume 2, coming out in April. Pick up Walking Through Twilight, A Wife's Illness, A Philosopher's Lament. And uh, I just thank you so much for listening or for watching today. If you're listening on audio platforms, it always helps for you to leave a good review. If you're watching on YouTube, hit subscribe, and make sure you click that bell icon to be notified every time we release a new video. And of course, sharing this on social media, on Instagram or Facebook or whatever you do your, your social media always helps to get the word out to more people. Thank you so much for watching and listening today and we will see you next time.